Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States of America, is often quoted as saying, a man who represents himself in court has a fool for a client. This week, we cover not only a fool, but a serial killer who could have operated for between 30 and 50 years. This is the case of Joseph Naso, and this is Murder Me on Monday. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Murder Me Monday podcast. I'm Cameron and joined with me is Mother. Hello. Slight heads up with some of the wider than we're going to use for this episode. We've done it in previous ones, but because we're going to be uploading to YouTube and other platforms, they can be funny about censorship. So when we use the word sexual assault, you can assume it's the R word. Mm-hmm. We would use that more f- freely, but I guess for like trigger warning purposes and for censorship, like I said, because they, they can just immediately demonetize you if you use certain words. So it's just easier to get that out. Yeah, which I did not know, so I'm learning. So, two well-known fools were actually Ted Bundy, the campus killer, and Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. Two well-known what? Fools. They represented themselves in court. Oh, did they? Mm. Is it because they think they're intellectually superior? Yes. Oh, and another thing, I'm kind of tired because I've had a really busy social life this week and I'm not built for it. I'm, <laughs> I'm an introvert that wants to be extroverted and it's tiring. I'm going to be quiet. Carry on, mother. Yeah. Fools that don't want to represent, fools that like to rep- represent, take, ah, oh, fuck off. I can't talk, you know what I mean? So many serial killers emerged over the 1970s and we've discussed before how many may be active at any one time still to this day. I had never heard of this man until I started watching a documentary on it called The Murder List on the ID channel and then started researching it and it's being dragged into court even today, even though the sentence was passed back in 2011. It's consumed me, I will admit. It's taken me four times as long to do this episode than it would have normally. There are a number of podcasts and documentaries if you wanted a different take on it that are available. Just a lot of cross-referencing and realising dates were misaligned and whatnot. So let us begin. Who is Joseph Naso? Born the 7th of January 1934 in Rochester, New York. So he's currently 88 years old. There's nothing about his parents, siblings or how he was brought up, although I have read that there are nephews. So there must be a sibling of some description. Initially, the story reads as in the 1950s, he joined the US Air Force. Good move, one thinks. Solid career. Find out he was accused of sexual assault. Got five years probation. I don't know if he was forced to join up. Sometimes it did happen back then, or it was his way of keeping out of trouble or being able to travel. Around the time he was in the US Air Force, he met a woman who became his wife, Judith. They had two sons, one called David and one called Charlie. He leaves the Air Force in 1957 and started work as a freelance photographer. In 1958, he is charged with attempted sexual assault, but never prosecuted and eventually pled guilty to sexual battery. They moved to California, where in 1961, he is driving past a bus stop and sees what is obviously a student waiting. He offers her her lift and drops her off without incident. A few days later, the girl sees him drive past as she's waiting at the same stop. Again, he offers her a lift and obviously, feeling safe after last time, she accepts. He asks her to go for drinks. She accepts that offer. They go back to the car so he can take her home. He offers her some pills. She refuses. He reforces them into her mouth and made her swallow. He dragged her into the back seat while strangling her with his hands and sexually assaulted her. She reports it to the police, who didn't believe her and said she was making it up to make her boyfriend jealous. Unfortunately, that was and still is the attitude some officers do have. That to me just screams that they they themselves have never had consensual sex in the past. So they assume that the R word that we can't say is common. Yeah. And why would she make that up to make her boyfriend jealous? Why would that be the leap? Unless the officer they themselves has done it before and tries to trivialise it. I know. The same scenario played out a few more times. More girls violated and not believed. So you must have thought he was invincible at this point, wouldn't you think? I have no idea if Judith ever knew about these arrests and convictions. She was described as quiet and rather subservient, so she probably didn't ask him if she did have any suspicions. One rather troubling incident was in 1976 when Judith and Joe were in San Francisco and went to a nightclub. 
This place is about 13 miles away from their home in Piedmont. She had been down and depressed after recently having a hysterectomy. She had what she thought were two drinks, then felt odd and blacked out. Anybody who's been spiked knows that feeling. Next thing she knows, she is in a hotel room with two men taking turns at assaulting her. It's obvious it wasn't consensual and she couldn't consent as she'd been out of it with her ever-loving husband watching intently from across the room. She, what? Yeah. What? He was sat in a chair watching it. So the, so the husband was a part of this? Yes. Okay. She okay. obviously wakes and the men are said to just run away. So they obviously knew they shouldn't have been doing it. Mm-hmm. She confronts Joe and he tells her that he thought her having two men would make her feel more attractive and it would cheer her up. Apparently he's actually... She's not fucking conscious. Why would it cheer her up? Yeah. She didn't consent to it. No, that's such a far... Fuck you, Joe. It happened more than once, apparently. Around this time, Charlie, the son, starts showing signs of mental illness. And he is diagnosed with schizophrenia in his early 20s. And Judith and Joe's marriage hit the buffers, with Judith filing for divorce in 1979. And it was finalised in 1980. Probably because of their sons, he carried on visiting her for years. And on the surface, they got along. Judith, now his ex-wife, moves to the San Francisco Bay Area. And Joe took classes in various San Francisco colleges in the 1970s and lived in the Mission District of San Francisco, then in Piedmont, California, in the 1980s. He lived in Sacramento between 99 and 2003, then Yuba City, and finally settling in Reno, Nevada in 2004. Do you know if he moved because of any other criminal activity or just moved about a lot? I suspect it was criminal activity. But there's no No. confirmation. I mean, past events predict future events, so we can assume, yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One thing is... I've heard some natives say it's not Nevada. They get quite upset. Nevada. Nevada. But my brain can't do that. I apologise. Let's say pasta. Some people say pasta differently to us. Like pasta. So the pasta. Ooh, okay. Tomato, tomato. I don't don't know who the fuck says uh, tomato. It's tomato. Mm. Mm. So Joe was a photographer, like we said, who travelled between New York and California extensively for decades. That's the link to his birthplace, which he frequently travelled to and still had relatives living there. In between photography, he was also often an apartment manager, so would have had access to a lot of single women, wouldn't he, under the guise of repairs and such like. Being a freelance photographer is an unstable job, and honestly, he wasn't as good as he thought he was, so probably couldn't get taken on on a salary position. Well, being freelance, he comes and goes, and no one is the wiser what he's up to. Way back when, it said he has gone door to door touting his photography, asking women if they would pose or wanted portfolios. I'm just picturing him being like, so I was in your bushes, right, when you're in the shower, and look at these shots that I got of you. Do you want some more? So he kept a list, and he does like a list, this chap, you'll understand why, of where he had been and any names he associated with the houses or apartments. I'm guessing some of that must have come from how people used to put their names against a bell on a panel back in the day. They don't do it now. You know, apartment 14A, Jones, apartment 15B, Smith. They still have the numbers, but they don't have the names on them. Um, they do inside them when you go inside apartment buildings. On the outside, they won't, so they have the buttons, but on the inside, a lot of them will. Yeah. They'll have the name of the person on the inside. So one rather well-connected podcast even mentioned, I haven't read it, I've listened to it, I just read it online, that he had the name of Nancy Pelosi written down, but no one knows if he met her or just knew where she lived at the time. Is she a politician? Yeah, she's a famous American politician. She's Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. So nobody knows if he ever actually met her, but she was on his list. Joe was all round weird and acquaintances, he didn't have friends, just called him Crazy Joe. Lots of neighbours told reporters he was paranoid, hot-tempered, kept himself to himself, never said hello and wouldn't even look people in the eye if he was forced to talk to them. He also had sticky fingers and had convictions going back years for various petty crimes. And it was this habit of not paying for stuff that takes us back to our opening. 1994, shoplifted some stuff in a store in Yuba City. Caught, slap on the wrist. 
1995, wandered into a department store in Oakland, California and tried to lift 30 pairs of women's underwear. Caught, slap on the wrist. 1996, Joe has to take out a restraining order against Charlie, his own son, who by that time was very unwell with the schizophrenia. He drops the restraining order and eventually took legal guardianship of Charlie and then entered into a long-running battle with social services who wanted his son in a home and said that he was giving Charlie alcohol, not giving him his meds on time, and the son would be better off living elsewhere. You said 1996? Yeah. So he's like 60-odd. He's 62 at this point. Yeah. Why have you suddenly... T- what? He hasn't suddenly. Oh, I know, because he's, he's got a history of committing crimes. But why would you go trying to steal 30 pairs of women's oh, underwear? Oh, you'll find out. Well, I'm not done. I'm not done being confused here. <laughs> if it's a sexual thing, surely you'd want to steal, I assume, used women's underwear. Okay, if that's not the case, he's stealing them because... Is it for the thrill of stealing, or is he stealing them to then sell them on? But why would you do that? There are better things to steal, I imagine. I don't really get it. He's stealing them for the thrill, but he also has a use for them. And you, uh, you will find out why. Okay. But it's 30 pairs. That's an extraordinary amount. Yeah. Do you know what the most often stolen thing is from like, supermarkets Shops. and stuff? Meat, isn't it? No, it's lipstick. It's really easy for women to sort of apply them or use them and just pop them in the bag. It's, it, 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 it can just be a, uh, a force, of nature, force, of ha- force of habit. Fuck me, I can't talk. It can be a, do you know what I mean? Because yeah. women apply it and just put it in the bag naturally or whatever, or they're trying on whatever. I don't think people even try on lipstick. I don't see no, you don't. Would. You have a yeah. tester that you always mark yeah. on the back of your wrist. But, pe- or, but people yeah. yoink them. It's the most commonly stolen thing. Well, I would have thought with the last two years, the sale of lipsticks dropped through the floor. Yeah. Nobody had any use for them. So Joe was also fighting social services to get access to Charlie's disability benefits. And he said he never spent a dollar on himself and was just a poor old man trying to do right. 1998, he started dating a wealthy lady by the name of Mildred, whom he met at a senior day day care centre. Well, you know, sort of socials and lunches and stuff. He was 64 and she was 75. She started giving him money, first for a van for the two of them, which he registered only in his name. Then more money to help with the purchase of a house to be near his son, who was in hospital at this time. Again, it was supposedly a house to share. Buy it in your name and then let him use it. That way, if it goes tits up with you two, you've then got the asset of the house. For her, it depends on wealth she is. Giving him a couple of grand for a van might not mean anything. So for her, it could be throwaway change. If she's got the funds to chuck it, it down for a house, then she can afford the van. It, it was more than that. It was $17,000 in the end she gave him. What, for the for the van or for or a total? 10000 for the van, 7000 for the house. For a deposit. Her share. Okay. Well, so she assumed he'd put in like another seven himself? Yes. Okay. He then starts getting angry with her. She thought they would be married and live happily ever after. But he wants her to get back every gift she ever gave someone else and also made her give him a small revolver. He also got her to pose for his photography shoots that he liked to do. Bondage in lingerie, and showed the workers at the day centre, who were understandably rather shocked and horrified at the nice lady, and the fact that this guy was showing off pictures she probably thought were just for the two of them. So it's old-fashioned revenge porn, isn't it, in a way? I, yeah, it is. Quite categorically, it's because you're showing someone else indecent pictures that you've not consented to, so therefore revenge porn. But for him, it might be the way that... It's not like the boyerism, because that's watching other people. It's You know, he's got this thing about watching his partner do it, have sex with other people. It might be the same thing that he gets sexual thrill out of yeah. the person he's meant to be intimate with, or is in- intimate with being intimate with other people, and showing someone nude pictures fulfills that. 75. Yeah, but it's, he ain't far off it himself. Yeah. So... So Mildred, she's scared of him by now and she got a family involved who ran a check on him and found his criminal history. She ended up having to get a restraining order out against him to keep her away, keep him away from her, sorry. In 2003, he was arrested again for shoplifting at the local food co in Sacramento. Same old punishment. 2005... Joe sues the social services, saying that they had defamed him and slandered him with the implications about the alcohol and medication for Charlie. He lost that case, but kept custody of his son until 2009, when his son is moved into a group home. 
and then he ends up living alone, free to do what he wants. 2009, caught stealing at a Rayleigh's grocery store in South Lake Tahoe. He walked out with a shopping trolley stuffed with alcohol and groceries. But this time he was put on probation. February 2010, his case was given over from California to Nevada. And they seemed a bit more on the ball than California. Where? <laughs> Nevada. You say it like Darth Vader. Nevada. The other week we had one that was Episcopalian. I couldn't and say you it. couldn't say it. We had about eight goes. Yeah, you're like Episcopalian chicken medallion. You just couldn't say the. No. You couldn't say it properly. But you said 2010. Yes. So this guy's eight, almost 80 at this point. He's 76. Yeah, about that. Yeah. And let me find it. An old man shouldn't be doing that. No. And he didn't need to do it. No, no. He's doing it for the thrill. It's like a clap, though. Yeah. But an old man doesn't need to be doing that. Why are you doing that? He should be playing bowls or dominoes. So 13th of April 2010. His parole officer is allowed to do unannounced visits, isn't he? And he turned up thinking he was dealing with a very routine check on a 77-year-old man who had been just done for shoplifting. He is allowed to go through the house under the probation rules. And he finds two rooms that are locked with padlocks. So they had a hasped staple on with a padlock locking them shut from the outside. Joe won't tell him where the keys are. So the probation officer cuffed him and searched him and found an advert for a gun cut out from a newspaper and find a bullet on him along with the, the advert were for the same calibre. That's strictly against the rules, the bullet alone, let alone the advert. So the probation officer called for police support. Again, he's allowed to do that. They need to check everything in the house out. The news reports say that the advert for the gun was actually laying in the open and the bullets were also left out in the open in an ashtray, but it's not what officers who were there at the time said. Police backup arrived to find the front door of the house was boarded up and they have to enter round the back. Not that unusual. But when they got inside, they said that the house was in darkness, curtains closed, and it stank Rotting food left laying about and almost a hoarding situation. It was such a mess. They then start looking around the house for anything else that he may have had, which was against the rules, and got way more than they bargained for. There were piles and piles of true crime magazines and crime books lying about. Well, that's me convicted then, isn't it? There were shop mannequins all over the house, mostly headless, but again, a lot Lots are, aren't they? That's the way they're designed. Yeah, but why are they in your house? Yeah. I think finding suitcases with mannequins' legs in them was a bit disturbing. They go into the garage and started to get worried. There were at least 10 mannequins in there, all female, all dressed in underwear and stockings, with one actually suspended by its neck with a rope as if it was being hung from the rafters. So that's probably why he wanted the 30 bits of underwear that he shoplifted before to dress these mannequins in. It's weird, but it's not illegal. Yeah, creepy as hell, but not illegal. They found a small stash of guns behind a fridge in the garage. They find the keys to the padlocks to those rooms, and this is where they hit pay dirt. Slightly more illegal, considering he's a parolee. Yes. They found a metal clipboard with handwritten notes. Dozens and dozens of accounts of sexual assault in Joe's own handwriting, going back to the 1950s and categorised by years, so you've got 50s, 60s, 70s, etc. This was subsequently labelled as his sexual assault diary by the police. They noticed photographs laying on almost every surface, piles of them. And when they looked through, they realised they were all of women in lingerie and bondage gear and at the very least posed to look as if they were unconscious or deceased. And some of the pictures also had various mannequin parts sort of displayed with the women. When asked what they were looking at, he smiled and said it was his art. I can imagine how that must have creeped the officers out. I'll link a load of pictures of this guy. Let's just say his smile is not nice. In the pictures that you showed and what you posted on Instagram... He looks like he'd fit in really well in the cast of Sopranos. He genuinely looks like an Italian mobster to me. He's got a slightly darker skin, the slick back hair, more yeah. aggressive face. If he said he had a construction co- or a cousin that had a construction company or he works in waste management, you'd think, okay, he's in the mob. 
He looks. That's what he looks like to me. And then when yeah. everyone sees it, they go, "Oh yeah, I know what you mean." I'll post some other pictures of him that go back to when um, they're obviously portfolio pictures of him in the beginning when he's doing his photography stuff. And then as he goes through the stages and you see pictures of him during the trial where he represents himself, which is where the opener comes from. He goes one minute from looking like that irritating local councillor you'd see down the Conservative Club holding court on a Sunday lunchtime to looking, just like you said, like a mobster. He's... It also looks a bit like Gru from Despicable Me, actually. Oh, yes. The search turned up a separate stash of notebooks written years later than the stuff on the clipboard. And if anything, they were even more horrific with graphic descriptions of bondage, torture and murder. Some were apparently accounts of past crimes. Others read more as an instruction manuals for carefully planned and prolonged deaths of individually named women yet to be captured including former neighbours and tenants in those apartments that he managed. I think he could have played off the pictures with him being a... Photographer. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, an amateur photographer, and you could say... Well, he wasn't. A, he was a freelance professional, supposedly. Uh, yeah, so even then he's got more credence to his name, hasn't yeah. he? You could play that off, but the rest of it you can't really. I don't think you could even play it off as uh, fantasy writing. Oh, he does try. But when that ties into actual crimes, they're going to, because for some reason you heavily detailed it. No. So they find two safe deposit boxes and a list handwritten by Joe, which was 10 different women and 10 different locations. It subsequently became known as the list of 10. Number one is the girl near Heldsburg, Mendocino County. Number two, girl near Port Costa. Girl three, girl near, and he spelt it wrong. He put Longanitas, but... I'll get into that later. Girl on Mount Tam. Girl from Miami, near downtown Peninsula. Girl from Barclay. Lady from 839 Leavenworth. Girl in Woodland, near Nevada County. Girl from Linda, Yuba County. Girl from MRSV Cemetery. They immediately think that they have a serial sexual offender on their hands. He's arrested on that parole violation for the bullet and the guns and is slung in jail for a year while police got to work. They formed a task force and it took three weeks just to log everything that they found in the house. One detective said that he, that he thought that the only thing they actually left in the house was the fridge. They looked at the list of 10 girls and his diary but couldn't align anything but they did find out a lot about his past. Not only did he have the sticky fingers, it seemed he also had a problem with being told no. 1958, which I talked about, he would have been 24 when he was charged with second-degree assault and sentenced to probation, and then another in 1961, which was that student that I mentioned. A lot more difficult to prove, give, have evidence back then, and what would be an offence now probably wouldn't have been then or was maybe downgraded to something minor, like you said, Cameron, about the police detectives, their reaction to it. Would have been married as well at the time of the second offence, wouldn't he? Again, back then, a lot of times the police didn't tell the wife that the husband had been charged with something like that. On the 15th of April 2010, his ex-wife visits him in jail. Of course, it's recorded, but arrogant twits like him never think. And he is on tape telling her to get their son Charlie, the one who was in a home, to break into the house find the safe deposit boxes and the keys are in X-Spot, which he thought was still in under his socks in a drawer in his bedroom, which everything had been moved out. He knew none of this. She says no. She obviously doesn't want Charlie to get in trouble. But he probably thought because Charlie had schizophrenia, he'd be, he wouldn't be getting into trouble for it. And he yells at her. He's shouting at her on the tape. Police are very interested in this. So they get another search warrant and open the boxes. And they find $152,000 in cash in one. Remember he was a poor old man and needed Charlie's disability benefits to get by? Where the heck did that money come from? He has never said. Could it be gambling? No idea. What interested authorities more than the money was finding photographs of women in the usual state of undress that Joe liked, but prominently displayed wearing stockings. And they were mounted on card like photographers do do, you know. 
but on the reverse were glued newspaper clippings, one of which referred to a woman's body being found. They then realised that they had details of a woman called Pamela Parsons, whose body had been found in 1993 and had been a cold case for over 30 years. And they probably had a list of 10 murder victims and not additional sexual assault victims. All of the photographs were girls in stockings and they're not wearing the old-fashioned seamed ones. He would use a pen to draw the line up the back of the leg on them. So that was obviously his fetish. They also found a calendar that you hang up on the wall in the kitchen, usually where we do it, with a box per day. You know, the sort of thing, a bit like our old logo. Well, he used that to write everything down and he kept them going back years. Is this the equivalent of his trophy that a lot of serial killers have? They'll, they'll tend to take something. I said I'd take a spoon or a mug or something, didn't you I? You said a mug, yeah. Yeah. Is him weirdly filing the stuff away and categorizing everything? Like a weird evidence it's of that? Is, is it like a. I know in psychology they say to do. And mindfulness is to think what you can see, taste, feel, hear. So you can certainly yourself in the moment so you can go back and think about it more. Yeah. That's, that's exactly. That's, that's if you struggle to be in the moment. If he if he's recording every single thing he's doing, yes. then it's easier for him to go back and relive where it was. Because rather than him yes. just, if he's done say a hundred of them, for him it's going to be harder to remember each one of those one hundred, isn't it? Because it's similar to the past one hundred. Interesting, you mentioned that number. I'll talk about that yeah. later. So and so if he's doing that, it may be easier for him to. Uh, go it's back an aid memoir, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. They find an entry on this diary planner thing for the fifteenth of September, nineteen ninety three where he had written, even an old school. They look a bit further back, only two weeks, and find an entry for photo shoot, four hours, think she stole from me. At that point, they think Pamela was number nine on his list of ten. What do we know about Pamela Parsons? Not a lot. 38 years old, worked as a waitress, and would frequently hitchhike to get around. Her body had been found in 1993 and no suspects at the time, so the case went cold. In total, they find 66 photographs in that safety deposit box and all of the pictures are taken so that the woman's face is not there. So it's a head and not his focal point, just body shots, but mainly focused on the legs in stockings. They were able to identify that the 66 photographs were actually just of four women. In total, they found over 4,000 photographs just scattered all over his house. They also find newspaper clippings from local newspapers referencing a body that had been found at the side of the road. Piecing together all that information, along with his list, that number 10 had that MRSV next to it, the police think she's a lady called Tracy Lynn McKinney Tafoya, who had been found dead in 1994 at the age of 31. What was her name? Tracy Lynn McKinney Tafoya. It's a lovely name. She had been drugged, sexually assaulted and strangled and her body left near Marysville Cemetery and it was a week before she was found, they think. Tracy's family told the police a sad story of Tracy's life. She had gotten married very young, had four children in quick succession, then her husband leaves her and takes the children and they're divorced. She married again, had another child whom she adored. Must have been hard missing her first four. But then the baby died of sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. They said that that broke her mentally, completely understandable. She split from her husband and eventually took up sex work to support herself. Family knew, were not happy, but understood. She had an agreement to ring her mother every single day to let her know she was okay. When she failed to check in of August, in August of 1994, they all feared the worst. When she was found, she was mummified, August heat, and was only able to be identified by the fact she was partially missing a finger. The police find a notation on Joe's calendar. Met Tracy, put it to her good. It's all circumstantial at this point, but they think they've identified number nine and number ten on his list. We are now at May 2010 and the police know they only have until April 2011 before Joe is released after that parole violation. And everything they have, no DA will touch, will touch it. 
So they have to talk to him to see if they can get anything from Joe. The DAs won't touch it because they have no solid evidence. It's all circumstantial. Joe, Mr. Know-it-all, thinks that they want to talk about the parole violation. And they don't correct him. He also said he didn't need a lawyer present as he knew more than they all did. They spend hours with him and he eventually admits he knew Pamela, the hitchhiking waitress, but not much else. They go back to what they have and that other safety deposit box and also find various business cards and identification documents belonging to several women. There was a passport and a driving licence in the name of Sarah Dillon, a woman who used to be called Renee Shapiro. Renee changed her name to that of Bob Dylan's first wife as an homage to the singer. Apparently it was a thing back then. Lots of fans of Bob Dylan changed their surnames to Dylan. Really, I wouldn't know. I'm not a Dylan fan. Something I didn't know. She was part of a loose-knit group that used to travel to Dylan concerts. And she used to, she did it for 20 years when she disappeared. She'd gone across the USA and all over Europe. The safety deposit box also held a piece of paper on which Joe had written, May the 4th, 1992, Monday, p.m. That was the time of the Dylan concert that Renee never made it to. Her friends waited for her and she didn't turn up and they just did not know what had happened to her. They didn't know where she was. Police are pretty sure Sarah is a victim and they discover that she was adopted and basically just dropped out of her family's life. They find her birth mother, obtain DNA, drop it into CODIS, which is the DNA system, and no hits on any bodies were, being, were found. They have no idea where she is, so I have to part that one, although they think she's number eight. Eventually, they are able to link back to a case from 1998, where a worker near the Tahoe National Forest found a skull bleached from the sun and missing the lower jaw. don't know why that wasn't DNA tested at the time or put into the system, but there's a huge backlog even now. Who knows? But she is eventually identified. But at the time, she wasn't. They go back to his list. Number one, they cannot work out who the woman is. But number two, they them to a lady called Carmen Lorraine. It's pronounced Cologne, but it's spelt colon for, for me, for being a Brit. She was only 22. She was found on the 13th of August 1978 in what was described as a body dump. She had two young daughters who she dropped off at the babysitters as normal and they just vanished until her body was found. She had had her first child at 17 and eventually was led down the sex worker path. The police actually took fingernail scrapings and clippings, even though there was no such thing as DNA testing at the time, but they thought that they might be able to blood type the perpetrator. These samples were preserved, so they were sent off for testing again and they get a hit with Joe, but it's only a partial one. It could have been another relative or a partial, you know, a cousin or something. So yet again, they couldn't get a district attorney to take the case. At this point, the police wonder if the, they have found the person responsible for what was known as the alphabet murders. It was also known as the double initial murders. These are a series of unsolved child murders which occurred between 1971 and 73 in Rochester, New York. Remember, that's where Joe was born, grew up and often visited. But all three victims were girls aged 10 or 11, whose surname began with the same letter as that of her first name. Each victim had been sexually assaulted and murdered either by manual or ligature strangulation before her body was discarded in or near a town or village near Rochester with a name beginning with the same letter as the victim's name. Can you imagine the hoo-ha going through trying to work all of that out as a perpetrator? The freaky part, that was all, there was also a Carmen Cologne in the alphabet murders. Mm, but it, it wasn't Joe. And again, another freaky thing, someone posted a TikTok 
in March of 2022, stating that they thought a grandparent could have been responsible for these. And I have linked the news reports in the show notes if anybody wants to have a look at that one. So DNA testing proved it was not the case. Plus, Joe's victims were much older. And Joe was eventually dubbed as the double initial killer. So fairly close on the names if you don't ignore the ones that don't match. So they go back to the list with only a few months before Joe is released, the list of 10. They look at number four, Girl on Mount Tam. They wondered if it could be Mount Tam, which is actually a place, not a set of initials. So contacted Marin County detectives to ask if they had any identified homicide victims. Rather sadly, Marin County have a master list that goes back to the 1940s and were able to identify one girl from 1977 where a body had been found on the mountain. The girl apparently told people she was off to meet a photographer. Again, there was no DNA or forensic and they just do not know if she was one of Joe's. Number three on his list. As I said, he had misspelt Lagunitas as Longanitas, which is an again in Marin County. They had no one on their master list for that area, so expanded the search and found one from 1977. Roxine Rogash was found dead on the 10th of January, 77. Her body dumped near Fairfax, California, which is about 10 miles from Lagunitas. She was 18 years old. She had been strangled. Police estimated she was killed less than the day before and they suspected she'd worked as a sex worker, but her family still deny that. When they found her body, she had on what they called pantyhose. We'd call them tights, but they were on inside out. Men may not understand, but we do sometimes wear them that, that way, especially if the seam on the foot is big and can rub and cause blisters. Police thought it was odd at the time, but they still kept them in evidence. DNA testing. And lo and behold, after 30 years, they get a hit to Joe's wife. They finally had something that wasn't circumstantial. And on the 11th of April 2011, Joe is charged with the murders of Roxine, Carmen, Pamela and Tracy. And creepily enough, they found post-mortem photos from Pamela and Tracy amongst his collection. How the heck he got those but he's a photographer, so he may have had some links, but I just don't know. It also turned out that in 1981, Joe was an apartment manager in the Bay Area and lived at a block that he managed was a lady by the name of Sharia Laferne Johnson Patton. That's the name, Narf. She was 56 years old. And wouldn't you know it, Joe used to take pictures of her. Her body washed up at a place called Tiburon in California. Joe was a suspect, but again, nothing to pin him on. So they have him for four at least. Two years of court appearances. He refuses to get an attorney, says he's broke. The court releases 152,000, that's 152 they found in the safe deposit box. And he says, it's my money, you know, you shouldn't be releasing it. I should be allowed it anyway. I'm, I'm poor, apart from all that money that I have in the banks that you took from me. Mm. And the prosecution proves to the court, although I couldn't find it, and it's not, I couldn't find it, but as many times it's said. I'm surprised they didn't try to do him for some form of tax evasion as well. Oh, that makes sense. Or tax avoidance, because he'd had, he, he wouldn't have paid anything on that 150k. Just, just, for, just for the fun of it, just stick it on there. Well, they said he had assets in total of almost $1 million. Papers are sealed as he wouldn't tell the court what he had and where it was until they agreed to do that. And the judge said, the only person that's going to see it is me. I've seen mention of a number of houses that he actually owned, but he also asked the court to give him back his truck keys that they'd seized from his house in Reno so he could sell it to help pay for an attorney when the court insisted that he have one to advise him. But the attorney would not be allowed to speak for him in court. He absolutely point blank refused to have an attorney or a public defender. And he said, even if I had the best three in the state, I'm still better than they are. This is how arrogant this man was. You're an amateur professional photographer. Who did a course in business law. That was it. Not criminal law. Yeah. I know he's an old fuck and he's got no idea what he's doing, but... They have to play it very, very carefully, the court, because the chances of him appealing any conviction were too high if they hadn't have handled him properly, especially if he's 
you know, representing himself. Prosecutors asked to videotape the testimony of one witness at a preliminary hearing because she was so sick she may not have lived long enough to testify at a full trial. The lady was Betty and she was 81 years old. She lived in Florida and as I said, she was very sick. Two decades ago, she'd had almost a year-long relationship with Joe in which he would ask her to act dead while he photographed her. Joe would also get Betty so drunk she would pass out. Then he'd take more photographs. 1992, Betty returned to Florida and moved in with her son. Joe comes to visit. Her son told investigators that he woke in the middle of the night to hear what he thought was the sound of someone being strangled. It stopped after a while and he went back to sleep, as you do. But he asked his mother about it in the morning. Joe started strangling me in the middle of the night, she said. Joe wanted to have sex with her while she was unconscious. During that preliminary hearing as well, Joe tried to remind Betty of what he called the good times. You still look good, Betty, after all these years. You still look good to me. We had a lot of fun, didn't we? She laughed and said yes. He asked her, did I ever harm you? She said, I don't remember. I wish I could remember it better. Joe described the pictures of the naked women scattered around his house as romancing and accused prosecutors of misunderstanding of his use of the R word. In my culture, where I come from, it's a term for making out, scoring, getting to first base. I use the term loosely. He's from New York. Everything was done by consent, Joe insisted. Asked how it was that so many went along with women went along with his requests to strip naked and be bound and photographed, he was boastful. I can probably get half the women in this room to disrobe voluntarily, he said. I don't think so. The trial commenced in June of 2013 and it was a circus. That's the only way to describe it. As I said, Joe represented himself. He cross-examined his ex-wife. And he got her to admit that he hadn't been abusive to her. Well, yeah, but did he say objection hearsay <laughs> to his own questions? <laughs> she would say that, wouldn't she? He actually asked her, um, I never physically hurt you, did I? And she said, objection, no. Objection, leading the witness. Do you know what I mean? You can yeah. come out of it. Yeah. yeah. And he said, you have never heard of me doing anything to anybody, have you? And she turned around and said, well, you did tell me you were accused of sexual assault. And he said, but that was the 1950s. Like, and that's irrelevant. Yeah. So mm. he objected to just about everything the prosecution brought up, complained bitterly about his treatment. At one point, he complained about a detective's obsession with his photographs and lifestyle. He, was, he said it was an invasion of the privacy of the women in the pictures. This is my private work, my photography. The women have been violated. What happens in a home is sacred and private. The whole thing is disgusting and I don't see any relevance at all. Yeah. He told the court that the evidence only showed he had sex with Roxane. He said there was no proof that he killed her and that prosecutors had no way of knowing who put the pantyhose around her neck. He also tried to say that it was actually planted. During the trial, he showed the jury dozens of photographs he took of weddings, landscapes and family members, along with what he called glamour or cheesecake photographs of nude women. He said he never forced any of them to do anything. He again tells the jury that his diary was simply detailing his fantasies with the R word used because that's how guys talk. I sometimes use that term. It means I scored, I made out. He's belligerent, described as ornery and also rambled on and on and on. And the judge had to let him have as much leeway as possible. It's the rules if he's representing himself. He actually only called five witnesses in his defence didn't call any experts such as a DNA one which may have helped and was probably actually too tight to pay for one. Technically, prosecutors sought the death penalty for the only for the murder of Carmen, Pamela and Tracy because capital punishment was suspended in 77 when, when Roxine was killed. But the judge and jury could weigh the overall weight of the evidence in determining the death penalty on the verdicts. 
It dragged out for two months until the 20th of August 2013 when he was convicted of all four murders. Jurors deliberated for about eight hours over two days and found Joseph Naso, then aged 79, guilty of slaying the four women. During the penalty phase of the trial, prosecutors introduced evidence that Joe also killed two other women, Sherrilee Lee Patton, whose body washed up in 1981, as I said, and Sarah Dillon, the Bob Dylan groupie that was described was killed in 1992. The prosecution didn't have all the evidence in place to charge Joe with them for those two murders at the time of his trial, but they were able to show that there were a pattern, that they had links to this guy. On the 22nd of November 2013, the judge sentenced him to death and ordered that he pay the victim's family's restitution. Of course, he objected said that his arrest and prosecution were kind of like a hate crime against him, saying that as a California taxpayer, he had already paid into the victim's restitution fund and he shouldn't have to pay any more. He was also ordered to pay the county nearly $171,000 for his expenses incurred during his trial. The figure included $116,000 for using the services of the county's public defender's office, 40000 for defence investigators' costs and over $13,000 to copy documents provided to Joe. Why would you be liable for that, though, if you're a public defender? Because he had the assets. He actually had the assets to do it, to pay for it. No, no, but I don't see why you would have to, because if you're... And he's found guilty. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be getting a public defender if you have assets to pay for it, should you? Uh, okay, uh, yeah, that's true. And he's found guilty, so they're going to, you know... It, so that's all the money from the safety deposit box gone, isn't it? But we are not quite finished. Obviously, he wants to appeal, and he starts chucking out paperwork. 2016, the state appoints a public defender as he cannot represent himself at an appeal, and there starts a whole round of games. I remember me saying I paid out those dollars to get access to a website and everything. I lost count after reading all the court dockets at 50. And there's a lot more. All sorts of games, usually extensions. The last one I found was an extension of time granted on application of the appellant. It is ordered that the time to serve and file appellant's opening brief is extended to and including the 20th of June 2022. So he's still chucking out appeals. He also kept filing to have his lawyer replaced and kept filing writs of habeas corpus. A lot of people will know the term, but in this case, it's specifically linked to a post-conviction writ. And it's filed after you've finished your direct appeal. It's a legal document that argues that your conviction violated certain of your constitutional rights. The most common claim that is raised in a post-conviction writ of habeas corpus is ineffectual assistance of counsel. Obviously, he's represented himself, so that wasn't going to wash, was it? Other bits of information that came out about Joe's house, which was held another secret. At one end was a room with a bolt on the door that could only be opened from the outside, so a bit like a back garden gate. In the middle of the door was a small flap of the kind typically found on prison cells, so food and other items can be passed through. The window was the only one in the house fitted with metal bars. Detectives believed he drugged, bound and held some of these victims prisoner at his house. Remember me mentioning in other cases that you can buy letters and such like from websites that deal with murderers and killers, money to be made and all that. I found one from Joe and it's described as an introductory letter that he'd obviously written early on from prison. And it's all in capital letters. You can purchase this for the grand sum of $40. I think it's been left unsold for a while. So we know he has a record starting with a sexual assault in 1958 through to the final murder we know of in 1994. So he started at 24 through to the age of 60. Maybe he needed the little blue pills by then or simply changed his MO. I do not believe for one moment that there are not many, many more victims. There's even mention of an attack in London, England at one point that sounded like a sexual assault on someone on poor woman's doorstep. 
Even if you think he started by assaulting and then graduating to murder, he has had 50 years to do these if you go to the date of his arrest or if you're generous to the date of his last murder. So we know of it's at least 34 years, isn't it? We talked about his shoplifting. It's not kleptomania. He doesn't steal random stuff and it all seems to be linked to his fetish. That 30 pairs of knickers. I think he was the skin flint. Think of all the times he refused to pay for a lawyer, but also arrogance. He genuinely thought he was as smart and as learned as someone had studied for years because he did that one course on business law. Like you say, it's tiny, like it's got nothing to do with criminal law. The man's a predator, and even at his age, you can see in the trial pictures, he just oozes malevolence. Seriously doubt he'll be executed because he looks as fit as a horse for his age, not frail, even though he tries to pretend it. And it's, I suspect he'll be here for years before he pops off this mortal coil. There's still a moratorium on the death penalty in California as of March 2019 because executions were halted by the governor, Gavin Newsom, and they had problems with access to the drugs. September 2021, official California Department of Correction records show that there's 697 inmates awaiting execution, which is the lowest number it's been since 2011, primarily due to suicide or death from other causes. And the jurors are less likely willing to sentence people to death. 23 of those on death row are females. So there he sits in San Quentin, filing court orders even now and wasting taxpayer pay his money on purpose I bet with at least six victims on his list not officially identified although probably one of them is known there are still victims out and their families out there without answers and I hope the police are still going back through those old cases and dropping DNA into codes to solve some of them according to his own diary he has sexually assaulted well over a hundred women and it's still possible that they may charge him for Sarah Dillon's and Sharia Patton, but it probably won't, they probably won't just, it, it's about money, isn't it? You know, it, it costs a lot of money to do these cases. It doesn't look as though he's going to get out. It's, it's sad, but it's not uncommon. And finally, the victims who should not be forgotten. Roxine Rogash, aged 18. Carmen Cologne, aged 22. Pamela Parsons, aged 38. Tracy Tafoya, aged 31. Sarah Dillon, aged 38. Sharia Patton, aged 56. I think that might be the longest victim read thing you've done there. That was about 20 seconds. Mm. Terrific. I know, I know there's more. Hey, there'll be more, especially if he thinks he's listed off 100 people. Yeah. He's actually assaulted alone and they'll be killed, the murders that he hasn't been caught for. But I guess that's the end of the podcast. You can leave us a message on Twitter on who you think was better or worse in court between Joe Nasso and Amber Heard's lawyer. <laughs> uh, you can find us on Patreon in the show notes below. Support us if you want. Leave a message for the algorithm, reviews, all that good stuff. And we'll see you next time. Much love. Peace. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Murder Me Monday Podcast and email at murdermemondaypodcast.gmail.com. Bye. Why did you look at me there? Because you, you sat there with your mouth open. I thought you were going to say something else. No, I'm done. All right, oh, peace. Bye.